This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, my coverage on the Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference continues. I will share my interview with Maureen Hahn, who discusses the progress of the Accessible Canada Act. Plus, a recent article in McLean's magazine is exploring the impact of food waste and insecurity on social and environmental issues. Don Dickinson gives you more on that story. All that and more coming up on the show today, but we begin with the top news stories of the day. We begin on the international front with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in San Francisco for the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Karen Rebo sets the agenda. Trudeau kicked off his California visit with a pre-summit meeting with his friend and fellow Liberal lawmaker, Governor Gavin Newsom. He said they had lots to talk about. On climate, on growing our economy, on increasing trade, on uh, helping our citizens with affordability. Today, Trudeau will sit down for one-on-one meetings with a coterie of fellow Pacific Rim leaders in between high-level APEC plenary sessions. U.S. President Joe Biden rattled off a list of the challenges during the reception he hosted last night. Those include how to reinforce and streamline modern-day supply chains while finding workable solutions to the climate crisis. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And speaking of U.S. President Joe Biden, he met with China's Xi Jinping to discuss relations between the two countries. Among the topics raised during that conversation was the subject of Taiwan. Britt Clement has a reaction from the small island nation. The government of the self-ruled island saying it welcomes Biden using the occasion to publicly express the United States' firm position on maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. The Taiwanese statement also reiterated that it will continue to actively strengthen its self-defense capabilities and deepen its security partnership with the United States. In a Chinese readout following the Biden-Xi meeting, China said the U.S. should stop arming Taiwan and support China's peaceful reunification. Britt Klenich, ABC News, Hong Kong. And now to focus in on Ontario. New rules are coming into place for Ontario child care operators aimed at ensuring children are dropped off safely. Allison Jones has more. As of January 1st, licensed childcare operators will need to develop a policy setting out the steps they'll take when a child doesn't arrive as expected. It's a policy the parents of Everett Smith support and believe will save lives. How it happened absolutely is devastating, but change comes from situations like this. Everett was just three weeks shy of his second birthday when he died last year in the backseat of a car in Bancroft, Ontario. A family emergency had changed his family's morning routine. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says it's an obvious step to take if it has the potential of saving even one life. Alison Jones, The Canadian Press, Toronto. BC's Centre for Disease Control says that there is an outbreak of salmonella in the province. Nicole Reese files this report. 
The centre says in a statement, the outbreak has been linked to imported cantaloupes sold under the label Malakita that should be disposed of and not consumed. It says the cases cover people ranging in age from less than a year to 68 years old, living in the Vancouver Coastal Health, Fraser Health and Island Health regions. Symptoms of the illness include diarrhoea, abdominal pain and sometimes fever, nausea and vomiting. The centre says BC's cases show a link to recalled cantaloupes elsewhere in Canada and the United States and on Tuesday, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency updated its recall notice from earlier this month to include BC. British Columbians are being told to discard Malakita cantaloupes that were sold from October 11th to November 14th, as well as any other cantaloupes if their origin is unclear. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. The next labour movement is starting to take shape south of the border. Derek Dennis has a story. Starbucks' popular Red Cup Day has been renamed by some workers Red Cup Rebellion. Thousands of unionized baristas furious over staffing levels are going on strike today. They say they're not equipped to handle the huge crowds expected during today's annual Red Cup promotion when the company hands out reusable cups with the purchase of a holiday drink. The union is demanding a new contract with better pay, staffing, and more local control, including the right to turn off mobile orders. Derek Dennis, ABC News, New York. And lastly, all eyes are on Iceland's southwest peninsula as fears of a volcanic eruption force evacuations and preparations. James Longman is on location. Massive cracks have opened up in roads and in people's homes, and people were given five minutes to rush back to their homes to pick up any belongings they left behind. There's also work to build a wall around a nearby power station to stop any lava from getting to it. It's a tense wait here in Iceland to see if this volcano erupts. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's time now for the daily polls. We begin by first looking at Wednesday's results, where I asked you... How often do you check in with your financial advisor? Well, we had some interesting uh, responses. 17% of you said every month, 25% said every few months, 17% said every year, and then 41% said never. We also had a couple of responses. Pearly Pigtails wrote in on Facebook, never, shh, don't tell anyone. And Jason tweeted, my what? A couple cheeky responses there on Facebook and Twitter. But today's daily poll question, this is going to relate to Don Dickinson's first article in the next segment where we're talking about food waste and how to maintain and and cut down on those food waste. So I'm going to ask you, how conscious are you about limiting food waste when cooking and eating? Very somewhat or not at all. So let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain to chime in on this daily poll. So Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you on this one. How conscious are you about limiting food waste when you're cooking and eating? I would say very. As a student, I have a pretty strict budget for food and I've had to sort of change my eating habits to align with rising food prices, but also to make sure I'm not wasting. So for example, I've started to buy a lot more frozen fruit and vegetables, which are are just as tasty. They taste different, but they're just as tasty as, as fresh because I was noticing um, I'm a bit of a parachute student. I, I commute to, to London, Ontario. So I'm sometimes away from home for a couple of days. So I noticed things were going bad in my fridge that, you know, the vegetables and the fruit, and I was wasting a lot of food. And when I looked at my grocery bill, I thought this isn't sustainable. So I, I switched 
switched and bought a lot of frozen stuff. I've also been doing a lot more um, sort of shopping throughout the week. So instead of having one big order come once a week or once every second week, I'm doing sort of little shops and I've been able to sort of sign up for a grocery service where I've, I've got my delivery free because I'm such a frequent flyer or user. So that's something I've done to, um, to really cut down. So I'm just buying what I need for those couple days I'm at home. And then when I commute to London, I'm not leaving things in my refrigerator. Um, and the other thing I've done to be very aware of, of food waste and how much I'm wasting is, um, food sharing. So I have a couple of friends in the building. And if I do buy a bigger thing, like for example, uh, a tortillere, I might cut it uh, in half or, or in fourths and, and share with some other folks. So I'm not, uh, you know, leaving stuff to waste uh, just with, with the way the costs are going of food and being a student um, and knowing that one in 10 Torontonians do use a food bank. I'm really changing how I eat, what I eat and when I eat. So it also sounds like, too, it, it would be not a bad situation to be, uh, you know, sharing the building with uh, Elizabeth Moller. You may get a couple of slices of tortillera or something go. else in there. No, I'll pass one through the screen, Alex. There, there we go. Uh, Laura <laughs> Bain, what about you? Like, how conscious are you about limiting food waste when you're cooking or eating? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat as Elizabeth. I'm going to say that I'm very conscious. I always have been somewhat conscious, but you know, with the rising costs of food, I don't want to be buying something and then having to throw it out. So I'm, I'm employing a lot of those same strategies in terms of uh, particularly like freezing leftovers and um, doing a lot more meal planning. But I also think we need to kind of think about this higher up the food chain, mm -hmm. you know, rather than just at an individual level. I, I know an initiative that I really appreciate that some of the grocery stores here do are when you can buy a bag of less than perfect fruit or vegetables at a reduced cost. And I will actually specifically go to the grocery stores that have that because I can get, you know, a bag of twice as many apples for the same price. And in my experience, it's uh, the food that you get is perfectly good quality. So I'd like to see a lot more of that because we know there is a lot of waste at the retail level. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's uh, part of what uh, the article Don Dickinson is going to be uh, profiling is going to get into. It's on that those uh, corporate levels, the grocery stores, these chains, and it's going to have a bit more of that impact. But I'm also curious too, is like, have you noticed that your habits have also changed when it comes to cooking? You you mentioned, both of you mentioned a little bit in terms of like the, the kind of portioning in terms of how you're shopping, but when it comes to cooking as well, like Laura, you mentioned you're, you're freezing leftovers. What about you, Elizabeth? How do you handle leftovers that you're going to find after you make a meal? Yeah, I'm doing a lot more slow cooker recipes. I'm a huge fan of the slow cooker. And then I'm sort of portioning out, like Laura said, and freezing. But I'm also trying to cook in bulk because one thing I find that is a weakness of mine is I'll, you know, I'll not have anything and I'll be like, oh, I'm starving. And that's when I make a poor food choice. I'll order in or I'll, you know, perhaps um, cook something last minute and then I don't have sort of the means to finish it. So trying to like cook in bulk, portion freeze. But I'm also finding that when I'm cooking, I'm doing a lot more sort of beans lentils, um, legumes, that kind of thing, which is less expensive and still full of like protein and nutrients. Oh, very good. Laura, thank you for chiming in. Elizabeth, thank you for chiming in as well. You're we'll welcome. be checking in with you later on in the show. But for you at home, I want to hear from you. So be sure to vote on this poll and let me know how conscious you are when it comes to limiting food waste. And maybe you have a tip or two. Be sure to leave a comment and vote 
on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter at Accessible Media. Coming up after the break, a recent study, a recent article in McLean's explored the impact of food waste and food insecurity on a social and environmental issues. Don Dickinson gives you more about that story. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Canada's food insecurity problem is on the rise. A Statistics Canada study says nearly 7 million Canadians struggled with hunger last year. The study says that in 2022, 18% of families reported experiencing food insecurity within the previous 12 months, up from 16% in 2021. It says food insecurity was the highest in Newfoundland and Labrador at 23%, followed by New Brunswick and Alberta, which both sat at 22%. The study found homes with a racialized breadwinner reported higher food insecurity compared with a non-racialized, non-Indigenous earner, and this was especially true for Black Canadians. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Now that is just one angle of food insecurity. There's also food waste. A recent article in Maclean's is exploring its impact on social and environmental issues. But it also suggests that the cycle can be broken. Don Dixonson has more on this story, and Don is the content curator for McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Hello, Don. How are you doing today? Good morning, Alex. I'm doing very well, thanks. Oh, that's great to hear. So, Don, this first article is titled Break the Food Waste Cycle by Josh Dominguez. Besides the actual waste of food, in what other ways is this issue impacting the environment? Well, you know, this is a very well-rounded article. He talks about all kinds of aspects of food waste, and he says that when food stacks up in landfills, it emits methane, a substance 25 times more damaging than carbon dioxide. If food waste were a country, it would be the third leading contributor to greenhouse gas emissions behind the United States and China. Uh, it's not just cars and planes, he says, that are polluting. It's also food. That blew me away, that statistic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, just in terms of to the, the impact of the amount of methane and things like that that are being produced, because you, you may not necessarily think of that as being a, a big um, uh, kind of driver for that. But what are some of the other stats around how much food is being <laughs> wasted? Well, this is another statistics stat that just blew me away. 60% of the food uh, we produce in this country is thrown out every year, a third of which is edible at the time it is tossed. On average, Canadians spend more than $1,700 annually on unused food, even as grocery store prices are 20% higher than just two years ago. Food banks are seeing 60% more monthly visitors uh, now than in 2022. Uh, and given that waste is generated at many points from the, from the farm to uh, the store, to the table, um, there won't be just one way 
to to break the food waste change uh, chain but many and this is the this is the gist of the article the fact that we can do a great deal about this and that we should be doing much much more yeah i i think for me the one that really jumps out in terms of those numbers you described that 60 percent of food that is produced is thrown out every single year 60 percent over half of the food we produce that that is a huge number that that to me is staggering and so within this article too the author is actually the founder and ceo of flash food so what does this company do to combat this issue of food insecurity yeah, well, he really put, took it upon himself to 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 deal with this issue. Flash Food <clears throat> is the company that he runs, and once clerks put food, uh, pull food from shelves, uh, these are uh, some uh, some food is donated and some food is bought. Okay, uh, users can buy it through an app and pick it up from one of nearly two thousand fridges across North America, usually at half price of what the original food costs. The company has diverted 91 million pounds of food from landfills to date. Hmm. And really, he's saying that it's just the beginning. Well, it's it's great to uh, see that there is uh, people and organizations that are working to try to break this cycle, trying to really uh, kind of close that gap and, and shrink the amount of food that is ending up in the landfills and getting wasted. Um, let's move on to the second article you wanted to profile. This one is called The Rise of the Application Coach by Michelle Saika. It, it takes a look at the students who are hiring advisors to improve their chances of getting admitted into schools of their choice. So what do these consultants offer these students who are trying to get into post-secondary institutions? Well, all you have to do is have a child trying to get into university these days to know how unbelievably difficult and critical it is um, for these kids to present themselves well. Uh, university consultants uh, offer paid services to students looking to sharpen their admissions profiles, coaching them on things like writing essays and on the curation of extracurricular hobbies. Some students have no idea which university to attend and want help in figuring that out. So we're talking about really basic stuff. The growing demand for consultant services mirrors students' escalating anxiety around university and i mean anxiety alex <laughs> uh, i am sure like i i remember even going through this process and it can be such an intimidating one because you never quite know what is going to be needed for those applications what's going to really set you apart but in, in in terms of this competition like to get into university what are some of the figures surrounding that well, they're pretty intense. Uh, there were 2.7 million post-secondary students in Canada uh, in 2020, representing an 81% increase in full-time enrollment since 2000. In the same time period, the proportion of Canadians aged 25 to 34 with bachelor's degrees increased from 24 to 42%. The growth in enrollment is not evenly distributed. The numbers for science, engineering, and business programs have steadily increased. Um, you know, there's a lot more applicants. Uh, uh, we all know this than there are for spots. Uh, Queen Smith School of Business received 9,000 applicants for 500 spots. So, um, you know, it's the old days of uh, my university days when you had really good grades, let's say, you know, 85% and up mm -hmm. or whatever, or some even 90s. That's long gone. Students with 95% averages or higher have less than one in three chances of being admitted to Waterloo's 
software engineering program. So it's uh, it's a tough go out there, Alex. Absolutely. Like when so when I first uh, um, came out of high school, I actually uh, was accepted into the Queen's Trent. Uh, concurrent education program and, and that was a very competitive program to get into as well there was maybe a couple maybe a hundred hundred and fifty spots and there were you know a couple thousand applicants it's that that level of competition as you say John, uh, Don it's just not you you can't just rely on getting oh that 85 average or you're okay there, there's more that goes into this and that's probably why a lot of these uh, uh, applicants are, are seeking out these consultants to really give them that that final edge to get in so in terms of these consultants, because you said they're they're charging a fee, what are those uh, price ranges like for these consultants? Well, this is pretty frightening too. <laughs> uh, the fees can range widely at Toronto's um, Youthfully, which bills itself as a huge co coaching and undergraduate admission support uh, company. Programs are, are just over 2,000 for 10 hours of coaching, including access to other Youthfully perks, uh, like virtual workshops, curated uh, scholarships, courses, and whatnot. Um, there are other courses, though, substantially more ex expensive, ranging from uh, $1,000 to $9,000. Uh, whether or not students find these, um, uh, find their, their top schools is a matter sometimes of just, uh, well, it's 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 the it's the essay that they produce. It's the grade. It's it's a number of factors, right? But these coaches have a lot of experience in in really uh, drawing out. I would say from these students uh, the things that they really need to put into these applications so they can get into these universities of their choice. Yeah, and I, I just say it's such a steep price to pay if you're literally looking to pay nine thousand dollars to get that extra little boost in. Uh, I I don't know if I I would have gone through that, but uh, wow. Uh, well, a lot of lot of kids just there's there's no way that they can go through it, Alex. They they yep. can't afford it, you know. Yep. I mean, they're barely scraping by in attending. So. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, Don. Thank you so much for bringing these two fascinating articles forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. That was Don Dickinson, who is the content curator for McLean's Magazine, which airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, my coverage of the Odin Rethinking Disability Conference continues because I'm going to share with you my interview with Maureen Hahn, who discusses the progress of the Accessible Candac. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. The Ontario Disability Employment Network's annual Rethinking Disability Conference wrapped up yesterday. But my uh, coverage of the event continues because on Monday I had a chance to speak with a number of presenters from the event. I interviewed them remotely from this studio here in Toronto. And I had a chance to speak with Maureen Hahn as part of that coverage. Maureen is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work. She is also a board member for Accessibility Standards Canada. She discussed the progress of the Accessible Canada Act. So 
Here's my conversation with Maureen now. Hi, Maureen. How are you doing today? Good, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So your seminar focuses on reviewing the Accessible Canada Act. Why is it so valuable and important to provide an in-depth review? So, so I think that we're really going to be focusing on uh, the standard that has been developed for inclusive employment. So employment uh, for people with disabilities, because a new uh, standard has just been released. It's under review right now. And I think it's really important for everybody to understand what that means and how people can get involved. And so what are the, the biggest questions, concerns that you have or, or that you have come across with regards to the mm -hmm. ACA and the new standards? So I will tell you, I feel that the uh, the that the standard for employment is actually a very good standard. Uh, I feel it's quite robust. Um, uh, uh, the consultations that we did also felt that it was it hit it hits everything that it needs to hit for employment uh, for people with disabilities, both both focusing on what the workers' needs are and what the business needs are, where people need to be. Um, um, aware of, of accommodations, for example, policies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were just three areas that we felt needed to have a little bit more of um, an emphasis. Uh, can I tell you what those three areas were? Absolutely. Please tell me more. So, <laughs> so the first one is, uh, is talking about disability confidence. So throughout the um, throughout the standard, there's a little bit of jargon here and a little bit of jargon there. But we, what we really want to do is pump up the fact that employers and businesses need to be disability confident in their hiring practices. They're hiring, they're onboarding, they're, uh, they're, they're when when people with disabilities are their employees, um, all the way up to um, advancement, and then of course exiting a job. If you're not disability confident then sometimes that flips into a bit of, um, of a disability management system where you're thinking about it's more about insurance and you're thinking about it's about an injured worker rather than this is a person with a disability, how can I make my workplace disability confident in order to make sure that this person brings their best self to work? So that's the first area. Um, and then the second area that we talked about is an accommodation fund, a national accommodation fund. We feel that if there is such a thing as undue hardship, for example, that employers are saying it's too expensive to do an accommodation, that we're calling for the national government to have a national accommodation fund that small to medium-sized employers would be able to access and then they would be able to get that funding to be able to provide the accommodations to their workers and then not have that undue hardship. Um, and I have to be honest with you, my the third one has escaped my mind at this moment. I don't know why. That, that's that's not a but problem at two, all. Two of the three. <laughs> two of the three. That's that's uh, still uh, they're very positive in terms of you know really trying to establish that it's like these the accommodations are are basically just being woven into any basic workplace that these should just really not reflect going out of your way to uh, to really create a new standard for an, uh, an employee. This should just be ingrained in Canadian workplaces uh, across the country. And I, I think that exactly. is, that's really kind of the philosophy that seems to kind of permeate through, especially with even the ACA and just trying to make uh, 
all of Canada, just especially on the federal side, accessible for anyone and just barrier free. Exactly. And, and, and they've, they've established that date of 2040. Where we are currently, do you feel confidence in that goal being reached and then in uh, focusing in on the employment side that, you know, the, the standards and, and the changes that have been uh, uh, put forward, that they're going to be adopted in widespread come January 1st, 2024, uh, 2040? So it's a good question, and I don't have a crystal ball, of course. Um, I will say that I think that we've got um, we've got ourselves set up properly for it. I think it's a big task. I think it's an arduous task. I think that it needs everybody involved. I don't think that it can be up to one standard, for example, for employment, or you know, we're talking about the Canada Disability Benefit, for example, and what that means for people with disabilities to get people with disabilities out of poverty and get them to a point where work is actually a feasible option because they don't have to worry about if they're going to pick between daycare or bread or their rent, for example. They, 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 that's the idea of the Canada Disability Benefit. But all of this is all still really new and we don't know how it's going to play out. So we have, what is it, 16 years <laughs> until 2040. Um, <laughs> it's, not a lot, it's not a lot of time, but I think that I think we've set it up properly. And I'm just going to go back, Alex, because I remembered the third point. Okay. And that was that we felt that we should not have, um, there shouldn't be targets that it should, that uh, for employers. So for for example, it's talking, some parts of it, uh, of the standard allude to the fact that uh, there should be targeted. So, so like a ratio of people with disabilities working at federally regulated entities. And we're saying that there needs to be a benchmark, that we need to make sure that there's a benchmark, but targets can be quite limiting. And sometimes um, uh, it can even tokenize people with disabilities. Like we have to have, somebody with a disability working for us, so we better get Joe in the mailroom, um, as opposed to really doing a benchmark of, of, of an organization and figuring out where they can um, expand their, uh, their hiring practices of people with disabilities. Now, Maureen, for yourself, you wear multiple hats. You're, you're not only the president and CEO of the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work, but you're also a board member uh, for the Accessibility Council. Like, how do you leverage both those roles and, and really push accessibility forward and then specifically within uh, the workplace and employment? Like, how are you been able to really push forth the accessibility of employment for Canadians? So uh, thanks, thanks for asking that question. And it is, it's, it's, uh, it's exhausting, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think that the time is just right. You know, we talked about this a little bit earlier that we've got our ducks set up right now. And, um, and I, I have seen, I, I'm able to tell people, I've seen a change since, uh, since I started at CCRW back in 2012. I've seen a change for employment for people with disabilities. I've seen the stat change from less than 50% to 55%. Um, and that's big, like that's huge. That tells, that tells me that, that all of the players are working in the right direction to push this forward, to make sure that we are noticing the talent of people with disabilities in Canada and that we're not doing pity hires, that we're actually saying, hey, I need that innovation in my place. I want that innovation. I need that lived experience 
that um, that that will that will bring that innovation. And for businesses that are not thinking about that and that are not doing that, they're going to fall behind. We see a lot of businesses closing right now post COVID, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But the labor market is is probably the main one. It's tough to find people and hold on to people right now. And so if we don't modify our places of work, we're not going to we're not going to succeed. So both my roles at Accessibility Standards Canada on the board and also at CCRW really allow me to bridge those two places of policy and practice to really uh, to, to, to help move the needle, I think. I, I'm curious, Maureen, what do you think the biggest barrier hurdle challenge right now when it comes to uh, employment for uh, folks with uh, disabilities in Canada? Is there one thing that needs still needs the most work to to address to really kind of change whether it's it's a something perception or, or something more ingrained within our employment structures that whether the, the standard has addressed or is, is trying to address? So it's a that's a really good question, and I think that the standard is trying to address this as well. Uh, but I, I would say it's stigma. I would absolutely say it's stigma. In a um, in a survey that CCRW did a few years ago, we asked employers, "Why do you think these are the employers that, of course, we work with? So they've hired people with disabilities, and we asked them, "Why do you think that your colleagues are not hiring people with disabilities?" And their answer came back and said because they think that people with disabilities just can't do the job. And so that's the stigma. And we know that that's not true. So it, but that's the pervasiveness of it. And I think that the exciting part for me, and this is why I think there has been a shift and why there will continue to be a shift is that we're talking now. We're not talking about, oh, this poor person needs a job. And so we better give them a job. It's not about that. We're not talking about the rights of somebody to work. We're talking about the talent that they bring into the employment sphere. And, and with that shift, I think that, and, and, and that we continue to talk about that shift. Here, I'm at the Odin conference this week. There are so many people in this room and everybody in the room is talking about employment for people with disabilities, 22% of the population in Canada. That's a huge demographic. And so I think that if we are gonna continue to have that conversation, that's the way we make the change. Absolutely, and and Maureen, you 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 do such great work. You're you're so passionate. You're so involved in in this uh, topic and within this community. Where can folks go to learn more about the work you and your organization is doing, and potentially get involved and help? Ah, oh, thanks, Alex. That's great. So uh, we'll give a little plug to the CCRW website. Uh, www.ccrw.org. We have a lot of really great resources on our website uh, uh, for both employers and for uh, job seekers. We have a sister organization now that is helping uh, businesses become disability confident. That's Innova, I-N-N-O-V-A, the Innova solution. Um, they can help uh, business, like I said, become disability confident. Um, and uh, and also check out what we're doing with dis, uh, the Disability and Work in Canada Initiative, DWC. We're having our conference in November. Again, thought thought creators sitting in the room talking about policy, really, really important stuff. Maureen, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much again. Take good care.
That was my conversation with Maureen Hahn. Maureen is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work. And you can learn more about her organization by visiting ccrw.org, ccrw.org. And for more details about the Accessibility Standards uh, uh, Standards Canada, you can visit accessible.canada.ca, accessible.canada.ca. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller has the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index saw modest gains yesterday. Toronto's TSX index rising just 34 points to close at 20,057. New York's Dow Jones average surged 163 points and the Nasdaq crept higher by just 9 points. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 95 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little lower at 73.01 cents US. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau arrived in California yesterday to take part in the AP summit. After his arrival in San Francisco, Trudeau first met with California Governor Gavin Newsom. From there, Trudeau attended a roundtable discussion about food affordability and then appeared at an APEC reception hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden. Amazon is investing in its first Canadian wind farm. The U.S.-based tech giant will partner with developer Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners on a 495 megawatt wind farm to be built in Vulcan County in southern Alberta. From the Canadian Press Business desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Now it's time to check in on the weather story with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you want to take a look at what's been some unsettling weather uh, in, in store for Atlanta, Canada. Yes, we do have something a-brewing in Atlantic Canada. This weekend in Atlantic Canada, There is going to be a storm, a strong storm, with a lot of rain and strong winds up to 80 kilometers an hour. The weather is getting kind of wild across Canada this week, especially heading into the eastern part of Canada. There is going to be a lot of moisture in different weather systems that are going to come together over Atlantic Canada this weekend. So this is going to bring heavy rain and strong winds. And this strong system will make Saturday a bit of a washout for the Maritimes. So if you have plans to be outdoors, you might want to do an indoor activity this weekend. The weather forecast predicts heavy rainfall around 50 to 100 plus millimeters for Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and parts of New Brunswick. And this is because there's extra moisture coming up from the tropics. However, the exact path of the storm is still a bit uncertain, which means we're not sure exactly what kind of weather each area is going to get. So if the storm moves south, we're going to see heavy snow in north and central New Brunswick. And if it moves north, we're going to see a lot of rain. Looking ahead, we predict another storm during the second part of next week. So I would keep an umbrella by the door, some boots and a winter coat because we're not really sure what kind of storm we're going to have. So best to be prepared for all kinds of weather as we move into the weekend in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, it seems like regardless, be prepared for a lot of moisture, whatever form that ends up taking. (laughs) We're not sure if it's frozen or (laughs) liquids, liquid moisture. So just be prepared and have lots of clothing on hand. Can't ever hurt to be overprepared, as the Boy Scouts motto says. Exactly. As a a former scout myself, yes, you can always be prepared. Elizabeth, thank you. We'll check in with you later in the show. 
That was Elizabeth Moeller with the weather. But coming up next, a growing number of homeowners are extending their amortization period to pay off their mortgage. Aaron Broverman considers both the advantages and disadvantages of doing so. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. The, these times are tough for people who have purchased a home. Last month, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions reported that about $250 billion worth of home loans are either currently or soon to be negatively amortized. That's approximately one out of every five home loans in Canada. Negative amortization refers to an increase in the principal balance of a loan caused by a failure to cover the interest due to said loan. A growing number of homeowners are extending their amortization period to pay off their mortgage. To offer what, uh, to offer what options are available and what that would mean is Aaron Broverman. Aaron is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Let's welcome him in now. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing this morning? Hi, Alex. I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm not too bad. Uh, we're, we're ready to really tackle a, a, a serious conversation here. So more and more banks are seeing an increase in the extended amortization periods. The increasing number of home buyers are now getting mortgages that go over 30 years. What are some of the advantages of extending the amortization period on a mortgage like that? Well, when you extend your amortization period, you're extending the life it will take, the amount of years it will take to pay off your mortgage in full. The main advantage of extending your amortization period is the lower monthly payment. Uh, the second advantage is that it will give you a little bit of flexibility because you can lock in at the lowest possible monthly payment, and then many lenders offer prepayment privileges up to a certain percentage. So anytime uh, during the year, you're allowed to put more on your monthly payments, uh, let's say 20% without paying a penalty. This will shorten your amortization period. And when I say flexibility, I mean you could do the prepayment uh, strategy when you have a little bit of extra cash flow and then when times are tight because of uh, high interest rates you are still only paying the lowest possible monthly payment so you have a little bit of flexibility there you can go from the lowest monthly payment to you know when you have a little extra cash flow you have the uh, 20 percent that you could pay over your monthly payment now, extending and having a longer amortization period, it's its not cheap. Obviously, you're going to be paying more interest over time the longer you have this loan. So what are some of the risks of extending or having a longer period? Yes, um, you will be paying more interest over the lifetime of your loan. That's absolutely for sure. Um, you It will also take longer to pay off your mortgage, obviously, um, with an A lender like a CIBC or any of the big six banks. 
they can offer advertisement periods up to 30 years, but then there are B lenders and private lenders, you know, your equitable banks, uh, your other banks outside of the big six, and they can offer advertisement periods up to 35 years. Equitable Bank actually announced a 40-year amortization period in October, but they haven't really released how that's going to work. So yeah, it will take longer to pay off your mortgage. And because it's considered a refinance, at the end of uh, your term, you will have to re-qualify for your mortgage, basically, if you want to re-extend your amortization period. So if you're going from like 25 years to 30 years, your lender will ask you to re-qualify and your circumstances may have changed. So you might not uh, qualify for a new amortization period because it's like getting a mortgage uh, for the first time when, mm -hmm. when you refinance. So those are like the three risks that you have. You're basically starting over again if you want to extend your amortization period a little bit. And so what else should uh, homeowners who are considering this move, what else should they be aware of? You, you have to consider uh, that there are alternatives to doing this if, if, you, if you can. Like, do you really want to be uh, locked in for an extra number of years? Of course, you know, when it comes to negative amortization, it's a bit of a misnomer because, you know, it looks like you'll be paying your uh, mortgage off for like, you know, 70 years or something like that because your your payments don't cover the interest. So mm -hmm. you're just paying off the interest and not paying off the principal. But remember that every time your term expires, it's a whole new ball game, and you get to renegotiate, and the the amortization period goes back to the classic 25 to 30 years. So it's not like you're going to be paying the mortgage off forever, but you also have to consider that at the expiration of your term, uh, you will be paying at a higher rate if you if you extend your amortization period. You also have to decide when you want to extend your amortization period and it's recommended that you do it at the end of your term contract because if you do it at the beginning of your mortgage term uh, you will have to pay uh, like uh, penalties for breaking that mortgage contract and trying to renegotiate the amortization period. So it's best to do it when your term is up for renewal. That is definitely something to consider. Yeah, that's certainly some good advice right there. You mentioned that there are alternatives out there. What what alternatives are there for someone who doesn't want to adjust their amortization period? Well, you do the classic, you know, saving money sorts of things. You you find ways to increase your income, you reduce unnecessary expenses, you try to consolidate your debt, you can try to choose a different rate uh, and a different term length, but again, do that at the end when your, your term is up for renewal. You could also try to refinance with another lender. You could, you could break uh, the mortgage contract pay the penalties or when your when your term is up for renewal you could go for a different lender and see if they can offer you a better rate so that you don't have to extend uh, 
uh, your mortgage amortization. Uh, you could obviously mortgage amortization only applies, you know, this sort of negative amortization only applies to variable rate mortgages. That Those are the people that are feeling the pinch and want to extend their amortization period. So you might want to try to go for a fixed rate mortgage, mm -hmm. but remember that you might be locked in at a higher interest rate when, uh, when rates go down. And so, Aaron, obviously, uh, the cost of living, the uh, of home ownership, everything has increased. But why do you think banks have decided to take the step to to offering longer term uh, uh, kind of uh, periods for that thirty year benchmark? That you know, a few years ago, it wasn't common if at all available to uh, people. So why have banks t uh, taken that step? Because more people chose variable rate mortgages when the housing market was hot and it was during the pandemic, so interest rates were low. And now that interest rates are high, you have people that can't afford their payments or are getting close to not being able to afford their payments. And the bank doesn't want you to default on your home. They want you to continue to be a client of theirs. They want you to still be able to make your payments. So they're trying to make it easier for you by offering these extended amortizations. But remember, if you're talking about an A lender, they can only offer legally up to 30 year amortization periods and B lenders can only offer five more years than that. So it's not like you're gonna see huge lengths huge differences in the mortgage uh, amortization uh, periods but you know you have to you have to do what uh, the customer asks and a lot of people are struggling to pay and it's better to have people paying than not paying at all and defaulting on their homes absolutely Aaron thank you so much for bringing this topic forward it's a really fascinating uh, uh, kind of topic and, and conversation so thank you and have yourself a wonderful day you too, Alex. Hopefully we'll see you again in the future. Absolutely. That was Aaron Broverman, the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. And you can follow Aaron on Twitter or X at Broverman. And that is B-R-O-V-E-R-M-A-N. Coming up in a minute, Laura Bain is here with the Entertainment Report. But first, buzz continues to build around Humane's AI pin. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. The AI pin is small, rectangular, and eclipsed your clothing. Tech journalist Chris Dokel Walker says it's designed to do everything your smartphone does, just without a screen. That means you can tell the pin to make calls, answer a question, or take a photo, all through voice commands. It will respond to your requests and try and do whatever you want it to through the use of AI. This kind of suggestion has been linked with ChatGPT. Or a built-in projector. Which is designed to then allow you to beam content onto pretty much any surface, although we've seen examples of it being used on the palm of your hand. The pin is $700 to start, plus a monthly fee for your wireless plan. As for whether it will end up replacing your smartphone, we'll have to put a pin in that. Whether or not that's likely is, I think, yet to be seen. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And if you want to learn more about this pin, be sure to check out the conversation I had with Sean Priest on Monday. He profiled this device in much further detail, and I had a lot of questions. He was able to answer most of them, so be sure to, to go give that a watch and listen on AMI Plus or any of the repeats of Now with Dave Brown. But for now, it is time for the Entertainment Report with Laura Bain. So, Laura, 
Iconic items from Prince's fashionable wardrobe are up for auction. Tell me more about what's happening here with the uh, Prince's old clothes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Prince was, of course, known for his music, but perhaps just as much, well, certainly for his fashion as well. So uh, this is a collection that has been specially curated to tell the story of his musical career. There's over 200 items up for auction. And just to give you a couple of highlights, the white ruffled shirt that he wore at the 1985 American Music Awards when he performed Purple Rain is up for auction. I'm not a Prince super fan. Um, when I think of Prince, that's probably what I think of is that white puffy shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, now that was estimated by the auction house at a, being around 15,000, but I just checked and it's at over 26,000 right now. So it just shows you people are going to pay whatever they they want for these items if they're able. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I certainly think too that yeah, that, that shirt was going to definitely go for more than 15000 If a, yeah. uh, a a costume from a failed advertising campaign in, in Edmonton with a, like, kind of donair went for over $20,000, I think Prince's iconic white ruffled <laughs> shirt is going to go higher than that, too. Yeah, that's that's true enough. Um, you can also pick up a pair of his stage-worn blue high-heeled boots. Mm. Uh, those are currently going for around 20000 But, you know, if that's a little too rich for your blood, there are other items you can pick up at a more reasonable cost. For example, some uh, stage-used handkerchiefs you can get for around $1,000. Um, but it's not just clothes that are on auction. There's also Polaroid photos, master tapes, and um, original documents. So anyone who's interested, they have until 6 p.m. Eastern tonight to get in their <laughs> initial initial bid. There you um, go. Yeah, exactly. So the, uh, the French collector who had put together this collection had originally hoped to open a museum celebrating prints, mm. but then those plans fell through, which is why these items are up for sale. So uh, what do you think? Uh, should items like this go up for private sale, or would you rather see them in a museum? I mean, there there are certain ones that I, I certainly want to see in the museum. Maybe that, that white shirt, as you mentioned, it's so iconic. It's so um, kind of tied to, to Prince and one of his key performances. I would love to see that in a museum. I would love to see his iconic guitar in a museum. Yeah. But there's there's going to be things that you're, you're not going to fill an entire Prince museum. Obviously, uh, this collector had tried. It didn't work. It fell through, hence why he's gone down this path. But... Yeah, I, I think maybe a few of the items, certainly, especially the more memorable, more iconic, more synonymous ones, should definitely head to museums, maybe Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, maybe some of these other key installations around the world that really celebrate his music and legacy. But I, I don't have a problem with some of these other adjacent items going for auction. But what about you, Laura? Where mm-hmm. do you stand on this? Yeah, I, I guess I kind of feel the same way. Um, although I feel like if you were going to have sort of a Prince Fashion Museum, you might need the whole collection. And um, so it's sort of a shame to see it split up and go to uh, private buyers. But I, I wouldn't say I feel terribly strongly about it. I I am curious how his friends and family feel about it, because from what I understood, the collector purchased these items from them sort of under this plan of creating the museum. So I'd be curious sort of how they felt about it going up for private sale now. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a great point, because if it's you're being uh, you're, you're buying it under the pretext of a, a museum or a collection and then you turn around and sell it. Yeah, that, that there may be a bit of backlash uh, from that then.
For sure. So I've got another question for you, okay. Alex. Um, is there a piece of music history that you'd shell out for? Ooh, well, pro the part of the issue is the fact that any piece of musical history I would want, I could never afford. But mm -hmm. uh, so for me, I, I don't think necessarily clothing or, or documents or, or anything like that is necessarily what would intrigue me. I'm, I'm much more, especially when it comes to music, I would love to have the instruments, especially some of these iconic guitars, because I, I play guitar, I, that, that was always my instrument. So something like Jimi Hendrix, iconic, restrung uh, Stratocaster, maybe the one he played at Woodstock, that would be something that would be obviously a showpiece in any collection. Uh, but even one that's kind of blends the lines between movie and music, uh, even like, I say the Back to the Future guitar that uh, Marty McFly plays, you know, and it's like, that one's both music and, and uh, a bit of the movie history. Like, that's that's what I'm interested in, the guitars of the past and iconic ones. But what about you, Laura? You have a guitar in the background of your setup. <laughs> so are you on the same lines or are you looking for something else? Those are some incredible choices that you made there, um, for sure. And, you know, I'm a student. I'm definitely not shelling out for anything iconic, <laughs> that's for sure. But, you know, I was thinking about this, and, and the same thing kind of came to mind for me, actually. Um, no fashion items, but when I was a teen, um, I was really into Annie DeFranco. I mean, I'm still into her, but I was pretty influenced by her, and I actually named my first guitar DeFranco. <laughs> I don't name my guitars anymore, but I thought, you know, if I had an opportunity to own an actual Annie DeFranco guitar, I'd probably, I'd certainly pay a few thousand dollars for that. Yeah, exactly. That, that's always the biggest problem. It's like, it's reality sets in soon enough. It's like, oh yeah, this is going to go far more than we could actually ever afford. But yeah, Laura, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. That was Laura Bain in Halifax with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, I got a short regional news update for you, and Brock Richardson is here with the Sports Chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Mythe, in for Dave. It's Thursday, November 16, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, Black Friday sales are already ramping up in Canada. Marco Fallo shares some suggestions on how to score the best bang for your buck. Plus, Studio Ghibli's Grave of the Fireflies is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Michael McNeely dives into a classic film review. All that and more coming up in the second hour, but we begin with a regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, the province of BC is establishing a hate fund that will offer up to $10,000 for hate-motivated incidents. Funding will go to places of worship, cultural community centers, and organizations. It will help fund security, graffiti removal, and repairs. There will also be an incident hotline set up to report incidences of hate. Premier David Eby says everyone should feel safe to be themselves. Let me be very clear. I don't want you to live in fear because of who they are. To be targeted because of a result of what's happening in the Middle East. I want you to be scared to 
human rights. And no one should be afraid to mourn for those lost or call for the release of hostages. And now over to the prairies. A panel reviewing Alberta's COVID-19 response is calling for rule changes to ensure the Premier and Cabinet have the last word in future crises. With help from a new senior science officer. University of Alberta professor Eric Adams says that move does not best serve the public. The idea that coming out of COVID-19, because a number of Albertans politically objected to restrictions, uh, we're now going to overhaul the fundamental supreme bill of rights of Alberta's constitution, to me, is, is a radical agenda that um, I think all of us uh, should uh, put a pause to. And that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, it has been another eventful uh, day in sports. Uh, there was a couple kind of interesting stories that you really want to, to tackle. The first one being the slate of international games played by the NHL in Sweden. Yeah, so before I get to the uh, rather hilarious story, in my opinion, I do have a question for you, but I want to frame this first. So Sweden is doing a series of games uh, with the Detroit Red Wings, Ottawa Senators, Minnesota Wild, and Toronto Maple Leafs. Of those four teams, you will each play two games. You will not play everybody, and it will be a, a series of, of games between those four teams. So that's that's what's going on. And it starts uh, today uh, with the first game uh, that will be happening, and it's at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. I'm curious, Alex, before I get into the funny part, do you care about these overseas games, whether it's NFL and NBA, whatever, whoever decides to do this. Do you do you care? Uh, so I will say I have mixed feelings on uh, these international games, especially for the NHL. The NFL uh, ones I, I don't mind because you're, you're only playing one game a week. You know, you can set yourself up for success with the travel and the time zone. They're also looking to expand down the road to maybe having a team in London. So it makes sense to have those kind of travel. When it comes to the NHL, I do not like it, especially as a fan of certain teams, because Brock, let me tell you, the last time Ottawa was in Sweden, it was disastrous. So this was back in the 2017-2018 season. Let me set the stage for you. Ottawa just traded about maybe three or four days beforehand for Matt Duchesne. That was the big turning point. They had made the uh, Eastern Conference Final. They were one goal away from going to the Stanley Cup the previous season. They made this big move for Matt Duchesne. Things were looking up for the team. They go over and guess what? They face the uh, Colorado Avalanche, Matt uh, Duchesne's former team, in Stockholm, Sweden. They beat them twice. Then they come home and the wheels fall off the bus. They lose seven straight games. They end up dropping to the second last place in the conference. They end up rebuilding, blowing the entire uh, team up to rebuild and reset. It was a horrendous move to go and play overseas, and the results really speak to themselves. The team never really recovered after that. They they haven't been that same team. As a fan of the sense at the time, I hate it. I hate it, especially mid-season. It's one thing to start the season over there. You have time to adjust. You can move back. You can get into the rhythm. To break up 
the the flow of a season to go internationally get adjusted to these time zone differences it is not a good thing to to have your team out there because you don't know how they're going to respond but as a fan of other teams it's nice to have games early in the day to have like 2 p.m starts or 11 a.m starts things like that to watch hockey overall but as a, a fan of the sense i hated it when they went over the last time and i'm not sure how i feel about them going over this time brock yeah, I, I I agree with you. And from a person who did a lot of traveling over his time with, with sports and things, it is a tall task. You, you do spend a lot of time in situations where you think, okay, well, I'm going to rest up for my, my big event, my world championships, whatever it is that you're going over for. In this case, you cannot get pre-acclimatized because you're still in the midst of, of having an NHL season. These games matter as much as the next. And I think it's it's a cool vibe. Sure, the people in Sweden love it. I, I That's fine. And I almost think, and I was having a conversation with somebody about this earlier in the week, I almost think these games are not so much for us in North America or the vowing of like, oh, 8 a.m. games and it's all well and good. I think it's more for the NHL and the growth of the game in different places, which I'm fine with if you're going to expand there. If you're just doing it for the sake of just doing it, I don't love it. And we'll see how I feel about this when the Toronto Maple Leafs, who obviously is my rooting interest, finish this uh, situation and come back. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the key point of this. How do you come back from it? You may do well in Sweden. You may do okay. But how do you bounce back as you uh, aptly alluded with the Ottawa Senators? So, Yeah. yeah, there's... There's just a lot going on. Um, one of the lighter things that's going on with this is that uh, one of the reporters in Sweden asked William Nylander, who is a Swedish hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs, quote, if he had taken the team to Ikea yet. He <laughs> uh, joked and laughed and said, no, not yet. He followed up yesterday, the same reporter, talking to Austin Matthews, who's another star player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But this time, he didn't phrase it so much and said about Ikea. He said, has William Nylander told you guys anything that you must check out? Uh, Austin Matthews had a sly smile and said, no, maybe we should press press on him about that, (laughs) but nothing specific. So this reporter seems really interested to know whether the team went to Ikea and had some fun at ikea but i just thought that that was sort of the lighthearted thing and sometimes you get reporters who think i'm gonna get in there and ask a question it's important to me this guy seems to focus really on whether or not they went to ikea or they didn't well it's, it's part of that uh, expansion when you're going into these different markets or you're getting uh, a different type of reporter you're, you're getting exposure to an international market and you know there may be one of those things that they don't they're not aware of, that there's literally ikea in toronto there's there's ones in the gta that uh, i'm sure most of the toronto maple leaf players are at least aware of if not having been to them at some point so i i think that's just kind of like part of the fun you know you can have all these standard questions it's nice to mix it up every once in a while brock but uh you wanted to also uh highlight the toronto raptors in their game against the Milwaukee Bucks last night. Yeah, I I was hoping I'd come on with a different result when <laughs> I sent this to you yesterday. Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is the, uh, people refer to him as the Greek freak for mm-hmm. the uh, Milwaukee Bucks. He was off uh, due to 
injury management, quote unquote, uh, and the Toronto Raptors came out quite flat. They lost the game 128-112. This is literally a roller coaster ride for the Toronto Raptors. Buckle up. You know, I think if you look at 11 games and they're, you know, five wins, six losses, you look and you say, okay, they've had a pretty tough schedule to begin with. But the the biggest thing for me, Alex, that really, really, truly needs to change is their shooting percentage. Some days they come out and they're gangbusters and they're just shooting from everywhere and everything's going down and it's all happening. And then other days they shoot a combined total of 38% from the floor. That is not good enough in this league to, to get it done. I'm not saying this team is an NBA contender. Don't don't mince my words. But you cannot shoot 38% in the NBA and expect to win games. It's just not going to happen. Well, especially when you go up against a hot player like Damian Lillard, who was lights out all game yesterday. Yeah, no Giannis, no problem. Take out one of the best players in the league on, on your, your team, and you, you still can dominate Toronto. I mean, he was making shots almost from half court. That's how how in the zone he was, and I they they just couldn't do anything to stop him. I think he finished with like 38 points or something like that, like six th- uh, double digit rebounds. He was on. The Raptors were off, and and this is a trend too that you're seeing. The Raptors are are trying to kind of get back. They're finding themselves in deficits later into the games. They have to kind of crawl out of these holes. It is not a recipe for success. Currently, they find themselves out of the the uh, playoff play-in tournament. They're they're on the outside looking in. It's still early in the season. They have a chance to turn things around, Brock. But I don't know. I I think there's there's going to be real question marks if this type of performance, these types of shooting numbers, continue as the the season goes on. And I think what you invariably see, Alex, is. You can have a a game where you come back from, you know, your fourth largest deficit in the previous game. And that takes a lot out of you. When you have one player that shoots the same, you know, 38 points that was your percentage of shooting, that's not good. And I think sometimes when you come off of a game, you, you shoot well. Sometimes you can really build the momentum and build it forward. And the Toronto Raptors just seem to, uh, you know, be putting themselves behind the eight ball. And it's really tough to watch them play in the first half because you you sit there and you think, okay, are they going to dig themselves out or is the train not coming back on the tracks? And last night was one of those examples where the train just didn't come back on the tracks. Exactly. Brock, thank you so much. we got to get out of here. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the Sports Desk. Are you interested in being part of a live studio audience? Well, AMI has an opportunity for you because Kelly and Ramya, they're taping a special episode on Monday, November 27th. They're looking for 50 individuals to be part of the live studio audience. You have to live in Toronto or the surrounding area if you'd like to participate. Be sure to send an email to info at ami.ca if you are interested. All those in attendance will receive a Kelly and Ramya gift bag and your name will be entered into a draw. You can win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. You can also potentially win one of five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. And so for you have to win all those prizes in person. So again, you have to be a part of the live studio audience to win on November 27th. The airing of that episode will happen at a later date. So confirm your participation. In, email info at ami.ca 
We hope to see you all there. Coming up after the break, Black Friday sales are already ramping up in Canada. Marco Flalo shares some suggestions on how to score the best bang for your buck. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI. back to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. The annual Black Friday tradition returns next week. The, the hype has already started, though. It's a great way to get a head start on all your holiday shopping, or maybe you treat yourself to something you may need, or maybe something you just want. Marco Folo has some tips on how to score the best bang for your buck this year. Mark is the host of Access Tech Live. Mark, how are you doing? Thank you for joining me this morning. I can't complain. I'm gearing up for the shopping season, so I'm counting my uh, counting my pesos here on the side, and we're going to figure out what we can get and what we can't. <laughs> Sounds good. So, first off, when do these deals start, and and where? You mean your inbox hasn't been filling up already, Alex? Uh, they've pretty much started. Uh, people have been advertising Black Friday since right after Halloween, trying to get people up there. I've been getting emails daily from you know retailers like Best Buy, Walmart, um, furniture stores like Leon's. Of course, Amazon is gearing up for all their sales. I mean, even you know companies like Aeroplan are getting in on the game, trying to entice people to use their eShop platform to try and you know double, quadruple, even ten times your Aeroplan. So lots of retailers are actually gearing up and, and have some pre-sales on right now as we prepare, obviously, for next Friday. Yeah, so you mentioned it's all these pre-sales that are taking place. Like, how different are the pre-Black Friday sales opposed to the big Black Friday sales that happen on the day? You know, the the, the difference, the, it depends on the category of product. Obviously, if you look at sites like Wayfair that does home furnishings, you're not going to see that dramatic of a difference when it comes to Black Friday or even Cyber Monday for that matter. There will be additional discounts, like if they're offering about 25% off now, you could see certain things go down to like 50%, but they tend not to discount items that they're putting on pre-sale any further than they already are because they know people are shopping now or at least looking now to see what the deals are but they're also holding off until the day of especially when it comes to online because online inventory is not an issue lines not an issue getting in at a certain time is an issue so they know that if they try to discount anything further afterwards it just bites bites them in the butt so uh the sales are pretty good now um and if you see something over 25 percent discounted your best bet is to either wait to see if another retailer might have it cheaper so that you can price match or jump at it now with return policies the way they are with companies you know as easy to accept online returns there's there's no harm in making that purchase today and reevaluating in 7 days from now nobody's return policy is less than that are are there any potential downsides to kind of jumping on a sale now that uh, consumers should be aware of 
Well, I mean, you're going to take up room on your credit card. That's for sure. So if you have a, an important purchase coming up and you need that space, I would advise against it. Obviously, you can you know choose to not shop on credit and then you don't have that issue. But downsides, you know, not really. I mean, it's a good opportunity for you to see what's what's in store, what other people are doing. Um, and, and don't forget for the retailers, it's also data gathering, right? They know what you're searching for. They know how long you spend on a certain page, wondering if that PlayStation is going to go down by another 45 cents to see what it is. So so there's no real downsides other than you know you know uh, stretching your buying power longer than you need it and so what type of items are, are getting the big sales this year so we're seeing uh you know trends in obviously home theater tv uh smart speakers these are categories that get significant significant uh, discounts and the reason is because they're trying to get all older models out of the door sometimes we see discounts up to 85 even 90 percent on models that are probably 2022 late 2022 early 2023 because you know they're going to be announcing new models come january when ces comes you know biggest consumer electronics show las vegas that's when they announce everything new that's going to be coming in the next 12 months so they really want to get those things Things out the door. The benefit is, you know, obviously, if, if you want to shop, I always tell people, look at both sides of the border because they tend to have bigger discounts in the U.S., which I know we'll get into in a second, because at the end of the day, the population's bigger. So they sell in bigger volumes to those big retailers. So you tend to get better discounts as well. Well, as you say, you, you mentioned the U.S. going south of the border. That, that was usually a big draw for many Canadians. You can go and score those big discounts. But Factoring in things like what the conversion rate for the Canadian U.S. dollar is, is it even worth it in terms of the sales that may be available in the U.S.? You have to really search for them. If you're searching for something specific, you really got to take your time to research and say, okay, is this worth 1.3, you know, on the dollar? Is it worth the shipping that they're going to charge me? And don't forget that customs can stop that package and make you pay GST on it and make you pay duties on it, depending where it's actually made. So you're going to want to check all those factors. Some companies like B&H is a big electronics retailer in New York. They allow you to factor in things like customs Customs and duty and shipping. So you can really see if it's apples for apples or oranges for oranges. That being said, the days of driving down to the US and getting in on those in-person sales are kind of few and far between because ever since the pandemic, stores have realized they can get the same, if not more, sales through online sales without the overhead of having to have people in stores and without the headache and some of the actual violence that goes on in the U.S. or had gone on in certain stores. Remember remember looking for that Furby for uh, Christmas? Yeah, we're not we're not going to have any more trampling at Toys R Us. I, I never remember looking for a Furby because uh, those toys were the things of nightmares, Mark, and I never <laughs> wanted to be anywhere close to a Furby. But yeah, that's a very good point. It's just all the online sales has made it that, you know, almost that, that day itself is is less uh, appealing for customers when you can just order the thing online with a few clicks of, of your mouse instead of having to trudge down to the store and, and try to hope to claim one of the five items that they have available in the store. Yeah, it definitely makes it more convenient. And as you said, right there, I mean, stock right there is a great example. When you're buying from a pool of, of you know, the globe or North America or U.S. or Canada, it's way easier than hoping that the retail location has one in stock and the seven people in front of you haven't grabbed it. So online is definitely an advantage. And stores realize that. They know that not only is it an advantage, but it's also more data for them. And that turns into dollars at the end of the day. Absolutely. Mark, uh, before I let you go, I want to find out what's coming up on today's edition of Access Tech Live. 
oh, I'm super excited about this because we're sitting down with Apple's vice president of fitness technology, Jay Blonick. He's the one who helped create Apple Fitness Plus, plus Healthy at Home's host, uh, Bobby Jens, is going to be joining us to give us her perspective on uh, staying fit for the new year. And we're doing it early, Alex, because we know that New Year's resolutions never stick. <laughs> That's a very good point. Mark, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. That was Mark Afalo from Montreal. He is the co-host of Access Tech Live, which airs at noon Eastern on AMI-tv. You know what else also airs on AMI? The Pulse. And this weekend on The Pulse, Joita Gupta concludes her three-part series on the 2023 inductees into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame. On the episode, she interviews Paralympic cross-country skier Natalie Wilkie. That's The Pulse. Weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And you can also find the contest on a podcast on all major podcasting platforms as well as YouTube. Coming up after the break, Studio Ghibli's Grave of the Fireflies is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Michael McNeely dives into a classic film review. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake, because you're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update. I'm Greg Westlake. On this edition, we preview the Parapan American Games, which kicks off this week in Chile. Santiago is the stage for 140 Canadian athletes as they compete against 41 countries from the Americas and the Caribbean. The 2023 edition of the Parapans runs from November 17th to the 27th, creating a jam-packed 10-day celebration of athleticism. With athletes competing in 14 of the 17 sports on display, Canada boasts a wealth of experience with 65 Paralympians wearing the Maple Leaf, 18 of whom are Paralympic medalists. 61 Canadian team members have previously won Para Pan Am medals. 55 of our athletes are eager to begin scripting their legacy on the international stage as they enter a multi-sport village for the first time. For seven sports, including wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby, wheelchair tennis, and goalball, it's a win and urine scenario for the 2024 Paralympics in Paris, while four other sports offer qualification points or allocation quotas for next summer's games. Whether it's through direct qualification or not, every athlete aims to make their case for Paris as they compete for glory in Chile. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Studio Ghibli is a legendary anime studio based in Tokyo, Japan. They're known for many classics such as Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. Their next film, The Boy and the Heron, is coming to theaters this December. It's got Michael McNeely thinking about another Studio Ghibli classic, Grave of the Fireflies. This film celebrated its 35th anniversary this year, and it follows the story of a young boy and his little sister as they struggled to survive in Japan during World War II. Michael has a review of this film, and he is accompanied by his intervener, Jillian. Hello, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing okay. So while there is no specific rating on this film, I do want to warn all the folks at home you know, that this film does explore some heavy narratives, especially surrounding children 
who are impacted by the conflict of war and the fact that this is definitely something that viewer and listener discretion is advised. But Michael, this movie is so highly regarded and is considered one of the best anime films ever made. Why do you think it stands the test of time? I think it stands the test of time because we care very much about children. We want to see them flourish. We don't want them to worry. But unfortunately, 1945 Japan was not such a place that was safe for children or their parents. In fact, 1945 may have been the last year of the war, but it was the end of the war for Japan because of the atomic bombs, but more specifically for this movie because of bombings in general. And I think it's important for us to always realize that in every conflict, those casualties, and sometimes those casualties are children which have no guilt or any moral culpability. Uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, you know, this is a very heavy film. I had seen it years ago, and I remember it being just beautifully done. It, it, it is very touching, but I forgot the emotional impact that it, it has. You know, as we talked about, this is a, a war film following children and them trying to survive through the war. So what, I'm, I'm curious, what stood out about the use of this narrative, about framing it around the, the perspective of children that stood out for you? I think one of the interesting things to remember, Alex, is that this film was part of a double feature with My Neighbor Totoro, which if you know about My Neighbor Totoro may seem quite surprising. But having thought about these two movies, they actually go well together in some regards because at least one-third of Grave of the Fireflies is just the brother and the sister having fun. Can't say the fun lasts, but they do similar kinds of things like take baths together and also chase fireflies. And I believe those things were also done in My Neighbor Totoro too. Um, I think one of the interesting things that I heard well, that I saw reading about the director and anime in general was that children's emotional expressions change from one, one second to the next. So you can be happy, then you'll be sad, then you'll be mad, then you'll be happy again, just because of some perceived slight that not other people may have experienced. So the animators really focused on that. They focused on the change in expressions and they focused on realism. Now, one of the things that is a little bit, uh, a little bit morbid is that they chose to animate children for Grave of the Fireflies because they didn't want any actual children to starve or to show the starve in the 3D children. So that is one of the plot points in Grave of the Fireflies is that the brother and the sister both die because they, are, they, are, um, they starve. And it's not a spoiler because the, the movie tells you that they both die right at the very beginning. And the director wanted to do that because they didn't want people to be caught by surprise. So I do appreciate that, but it's a, it's a strange way of going around it. However, I do want to say that when I watched Grave of the Fireflies, it was sad, of course, but it was also happy because the brother and the sister reunited in the afterlife. And I think given the time in 1945, that's probably the best for them because at least they're together again, they're not suffering anymore. Uh, yeah, and as you mentioned, literally the first line in the movie is uh, September 12, 1945. That is the day I died. 
So, so it really sets the stage, and, and you, you wonder as an audience member, how did the story get to here? What was that journey like? You've often spoken about the power of animation, and, and you touched on it a bit with your last answer. What, what leverage and, and what advantage did the animation provide to tell this story and make it as compelling and memorable as it was? I think one of the scenes that stood out to me in a movie was when the boy sees the Navy ship, the, and the spectacular lights, and it looks like you're in Hollywood for a second. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. And the firefighters are beautiful. And the town is constructed beautifully. And I'm sure we're going to talk about all this again with the boy in the Huon in December. Um, but I think it's just, you know, you can pause. You can pause the movie at any time. And even the ugly scenes do stand out to you as, as they were finally constructed and they were, they were finally detailed and they took their time to make sure that everything was perfect. And I think, you know, in anime, you can do anything that we can do in 3D plus more because you have the imagination aspects that can, that can convey in uh, animation. And so another thing about this movie that makes it stand out is that it's the reason why, part of the reason why Japan fell in love with anime. Um, in 1988, it wasn't quite as popular as it is now. Of course, Japanese people love manga. They've always been reading manga since World War II, obviously, but um, not anime specifically. That was more of a medium that people thought was just for children. That's why this was marketed with My Neighbor Totoro, but that wasn't the point of this film, The Grave of the Fireflies, it was for adults about children. So I think, you know, we can still have a lot to do with animation and anime to explore adult concepts. And you did some digging into the director and the writer because this story is based on a 1967 book of the same name. You, there's a lot of parallels between their personal uh, story and the story presented in Grave of the Fireflies. Can you tell me a bit more? Yeah, so the writer experienced the bombing as well as the director, two different people. Um, I can focus on the director. I'd like to read the, the novel, The Grave of the Fireflies, some other time. Um, but the director, I think, was nine years old during the bombing of, bombing of his hometown. And he witnessed many people dying, and he was afraid for his life. He had no idea what was happening, and he survived but it still lingered with him. And so he wanted to show that experience on film. One of the interesting things, though, is that the director is now deceased. He died in 2018, but he was very adamant that this film is not an anti-war film. I, I sort of see that, but I sort of disagree with him, and I think that's it's fine for a director to have an opinion about the movie, but they can't control how we see the movie. And so this movie has a multiple, multiple um, interpretations. And so my interpretation is, yes, it's anti-war. It's a story about what happens. Just when you're trying to survive day to day, regardless of what's happening outside in the country, I mean, maybe these children would have starved in other circumstances. But the why is also the reason why they starved as well. So I think it's, it's, it's saying, you know, this kind of stuff happens, but we should be careful when this stuff happens because we need to look after our weaker members of society. So I think that's my take on it. Why do you think the, 
people should view this film. It's 35 years old. Why do you think it's still important for audiences and those who haven't seen it to check this film out? Well, the reason I wanted to talk about this film was after their segments on, oh, the light we cannot see. So I wanted to contribute in some small way to the conversation. And, you know, war time is never fun for anyone. And especially we talked about the soldiers last week and we talked about the Navy two weeks before that. Um, I think it's important to realize that there are many, many uh, sacrifices that we make during wartime and we, we ought to do better protecting our children. And I think this film shows that, but it also shows that children can be resilient. Like they tried their best, the brother and the sister, they didn't survive, but they tried their best. They, they, they found ways to make their lives meaningful and, you know, that's, that's all we can hope for in some circumstances, right? Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing a review of this film. It, it was something that I'm glad I, I rewatched. So thank you and have yourself a wonderful day. I think, you know, it's, it's okay to watch this film in pieces. It's okay to say, maybe even read these somewhere on Wikipedia if you can't watch it. But I think it's still a story with new and about. Okay, perfect. That was Michael McNeely with a review of the film Grave of the Fireflies. It is available on Apple TV and on iTunes with closed captioning. Michael was accompanied with his intervener, Jill. Coming up after the break, we have a roundtable discussion with Elizabeth Moeller and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Normally at this point, I would welcome in Ramya Muthan to do the handoff and let people know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. She's away today, but not to worry, I have all the juicy details. So, Fern Lullum will be sharing her experience providing audio description for the Netflix show All the Light We Cannot See. And how can you make the perfect cookie? Chef Mary Mammolini will give you some tips, plus descriptive video producer Mark Phoenix will drop by for the round table chat. That's all taking place on Kelly and Ramya today, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Now I want to welcome in Elizabeth Moeller and Nazreen Abdel-Majid for the round table chat. And Elizabeth, you have a new report that's got you thinking about some questions here. Yeah, I um, I have. I, I feel like I should be playing, you know, Eleanor Rigby's Where All the Lonely People from the Beatles. But, uh, you know, there's been a recent report released in Toronto. And sadly, it shows that people in the city aren't getting involved in community activities and they feel more lonely and they're having a bit of a tough time with, with mental health struggles. And we've talked about that before. Um, the report is called the 2023 Vital Signs and it was released by Toronto Foundation. And it covered areas like health, community involvement, housing, and arts and culture, just to name a few. So I wanted to, to put our heads together and I, I wanna think about what ideas can be implemented on individual and community levels 
to address social isolation and to kind of combat some of these issues that we're having. So Nazreen, I, I want to throw it over to you. What are your thoughts? Um, well, to, to actually identify some ideas of what can help the city and what can, you know, collect everybody together and, and make Toronto a better, a so-called better place, um, we have to find the foundation of what went wrong and, and what can we do to do better and eliminate that. So um, it's, it's harder than it seems. And yeah, a lot of people have mental health struggles and, and um, uh, people have been having a, a tough time and especially in the last few years. And I hate to mention this because it's irrelevant nowadays, but the pandemic had a big impact on a lot of people making people very lonely and and yes um the increase of mental health has been proven of course so i think that is what triggered a lot of people to kind of you know back off uh so i i guess have to start with you know it's going to take a while. Hmm. We have to expect it takes a while. It takes a long time for people to kind of get up and and um, stand together and do more volunteer work and do more donations and do and be more engaged um, in the community. And I feel like there hasn't been enough done for the community. There hasn't been enough activities for the community. Um, before the pandemic, and again, I didn't want to mention the pandemic, but I feel like it is relevant when it comes to the impact on people. But the uh, connection there is that before the pandemic, there were more there were more engagement, and I I know and I understand that um, people have been neglecting kind of being part of the community more. But I feel like if we had more activities and more events local events happening people are more likely to come together and every time and i feel like mm -hmm. every time would increase and increase and increase i feel like when the city is doing good for the community the people will see that yeah i i think to build on your point nazreen i think that you know obviously when we talk about events there are tons of events that happen every single day, weekend, what have you, in the city of Toronto. But I mm -hmm. think it's really like focusing in on those small community events, the ones yeah. that you're not you're, you're not welcoming the entire city uh, to a block party or a little event at a local community center. Like, like keeping things small and more intimate, that it's not overwhelming for people, that you can actually develop those personal connections, I think is really key. The other one I would really point to is having more green spaces, more public areas where there is, there's promotion of just going and having fun, interacting and, and just doing things without a burden of cost, without a burden of expectation. Because I, I always think of it as like, yeah, we have some, some great parks, but it's like they're, they're the really big ones and there's always a ton of people there. What about these small little ones, these little pockets yeah. that can that can come up in between a couple of different streets here and there that, you know, the the surrounding neighborhood can can enjoy without feeling like every single time you go there you're you're running into hundreds of people because they're all having the same idea to go get out and explore these little parts that's i think really where 
you can start to build that community, that you have these little local parks in one neighborhood here or there, that you can start to make that connection with other people in your neighborhood or maybe even in your building. Elizabeth, what about you? What uh, Do you have any ideas of how you can kind of start to address yeah, this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because, you know, in preparing for today, I, I read a report that just came out yesterday from the WHO, the, the World Health Organization, and it's a global initiative that's going to be started to address and combat um, social isolation. And one of the things that's worked in other jurisdictions, Japan and certainly in, in Britain, is uh, a minister for isolation. And this minister really starts to um, promote social isolation and its effects at the same rate or level that we think about when we think about the harms that other diseases cause. So, you know, we, we do a lot of promotion around um, the harms of tobacco or the harms of obesity. And so the, the role of this, this uh, minister is really to kind of start thinking about ways to talk about social isolation, to destigmatize it. And there's actually a, a hashtag, hashtag isolation no more, where, where we're talking about this issue. So that's one thing is a minister for social isolation. The other thing I would say, um, is we need to be able to get around our communities to feel connected. And so public transit, and I won't go down a transit rabbit hole today, but transit that has an infrastructure that's accessible, that's affordable, that connects people, not just within a city, whether it's Toronto or otherwise, but connects people uh, intercity, so city to city. I think that's a big one. Um, and then I think mm -hmm. absolutely green spaces and community gardens are key. Um, we know that we're building up in many cities, not just Toronto, and so we're not having that space to come together some more green space where people can come can plant um and i think the other the other thing that i think about is certainly social media can be sort of a help and a hindrance but i think being able to leverage social media to have these discussions to have online groups for people who may not feel comfortable going out due to maybe inclement weather or health conditions um, but continuing to have these kinds of conversations and i think the last thing i would say is to really treat this the way that we treat physical ailments that this is a serious mental health epidemic. In fact, it's been called a silent epidemic, um, this issue of loneliness. So, so those are some of my thoughts around sort of how to combat it at, at a more sort of community level. Um, individually, I think I would say that absolutely um, being able to connect to something in your community, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, a huge thing, but what what is your interest as an individual? Like what interests you? And then being able to reach out and see if there's perhaps a group in your community that you can join, whether it's a faith group or an arts and culture group. I think that's really key. And then just sort of making an effort to reach out to people around you, whether it's in your building or in your neighborhood, to make those connections. I'm I'm curious from each of you. Is there an example that you could pull from as to a city or a a community that you feel would be a good like starting point or or a model that you know Toronto could use it's like what what the end result would be uh Nisreen let's start with you on that is there a, a city you think of that's like oh they 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 understand the sense of community belonging there is a connectivity you feel connected when you're in this city um I mean it doesn't have to be within Canada no it can be different... anywhere in the world so I feel like 
I know, I know you said quickly, but now I'm I'm I'm. You, you know what? Okay, uh, why don't you think about it, Elizabeth? Do you have? Uh... I can. Yes. Okay. Um, I traveled to Odensa uh, this mm -hmm. summer, which is about an hour and a bit outside of um, Copenhagen. It's located in Denmark, and there's a couple things to me that really stood out that made this city feel like a community. One is uh, a town square, um, more sort of informally known as the square, where there was sort of outdoor cafes. Um, it was walking space. People. Lots a green space so people would just come together and it had a real sense of community um and just i think a real real sense of belonging the other thing about odin's that i liked was you touched on alex the little mini parks um, and there would often be live musicians just playing in the parks people would gather around sort of very informally um and i think the other thing that helped was just the walkability of the small city so people were out on foot more it was a lot more accessible so those are the kind of things to me that really stood out as having um infrastructure that supports community. And interestingly, in Odense as well, they had wellness checks. So, you know, for people that had disabilities or people that were are seniors or older adults, um, community organizations would would um, do wellness checks to make sure that the, these individuals are, are having what they need to thrive. Okay, Nisreen, we have about 30 seconds. Do you have uh, a, a city example that you'd like to draw? Yes. Yes, and I, I love that Elizabeth brought up the uh, transit um, uh, connection here is London, UK, and especially in Europe where they have a great infrastructure for transit and that kind of builds the community even better. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. That, yeah, and, and so uh, for me, quickly, Munich, Germany, and then even a smaller mm. offset, uh, Pfaffenhofen, which is about 30 minutes outside. Mm. Same thing, those squares, everything, those spaces are key. Okay, that's all the time we have for the round table, and it's all the time we have for the show. Elizabeth, thank you. Have a good day. Nisreen, thank You're you. Have welcome. a good day. Thank you. And for all you at home, thank you so much for joining today and, and watching the show and enjoying it with me. We will be back here tomorrow with the news panel. Joita Gupta, Michelle McQuig, and I will dissect the top stories of the day. But for now, that's all the time we have on the show. You're watching. Thank you for watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.